Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. A couple of years ago, I was watching one of my favorite childhood cartoons with my son Aiden. And the hero in that cartoon at the end, after they defeated the villains, was offered a throne by his fellow soldiers. And he turned it down. And he said, in essence, thrones are for bad guys. Thrones are for bad guys. Recently, I was watching a collection video. A guy had a, a collection full of statues from pop media in his basement. And he had one section of his collection that was all devoted to bad guys sitting on thrones. And all the different bad guys sitting on their thrones. That's interesting, isn't it? Here we are in Revelation chapter 4. We have a vision of a cosmic throne and a mighty being sitting on that throne who most people in the world are in rebellion against, who malign him, misunderstand him, and who would view God on his throne much the same way that they would view one of these supervillains on their throne. That's deliberate. Satan has conjured that image over and over again for us in our culture for a reason. And so this morning, I thought it would be wise to follow up our sermon last week on Revelation 4 and the throne in heaven with a defense of why it is a good thing that God sits on a throne. Why it is a good thing that God demands worship from all of his creation. Growing up, I had a high school friend, one of my best friends in high school. I'd constantly be inviting him to church and sharing my faith with him. And he told me, Timothy, I just don't like the God of the Bible. He seems very self-centered, seems very self-focused, seems kind of like a, a megalomaniac. And so I've been continuing to pray for my friend over the decades but people in our culture, the majority in our society, would recoil emotionally from the portrait of God in Revelation chapter 4, seated on his cosmic throne, demanding obedience, demanding worship, and they would think that this is more like a tyrant, an enemy of freedom and justice. And so how is it that we can share this good news that God is on his throne with a society that has been conditioned to view that as an evil thing. You know, even most Christians around us in our culture have conformed their view of God in light of this type of feeling. So that we have an aversion, even among Christian circles, to the preaching of God's sovereignty and his retributive justice. The natural inclination of most Christians is much like the natural inclination of society to construct a God who is more like good old Saint Nick than the biblical portrait that we've just read in Psalm 50 and that we studied last week in Revelation chapter 4. So let's take a look then at our outline this morning as we seek to apply Revelation chapter 4 and its teachings on the throne of God and the worship that is due to God. And we're going to be answering these questions. Number one, why does God demand worship? Let's talk about God's right to worship. And then secondly, we're going to be looking at God's right to rule. Why is it good that God is seated on his throne? Now, 
When my high school friend brought up the idea that God seems selfish or self-focused or megalomaniacal, such behavior, as we see in Revelation chapter 4, would be disgusting if it were being done by a creature, but it is right when it is done by the Creator. And this is the key. This is what you have to understand from the outset. The essence of sin is to try to place the creature in the place of the Creator, and then also to place the Creator in the place of the creature. Think all the way back to Genesis. What was the temptation that Satan presented to Adam and Eve? In the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. What was Satan's original fall as described in the prophets of the Old Testament? He said, I'm going to raise my throne up above and I'm going to be like the Almighty. Man's desire to take the Creator off the throne and to place himself on the throne is manifest in our culture, in our society, not by a totalitarian dictator, fortunately, but it is manifest in previous decades, in previous centuries, in the autonomy of the individual, the freedom of the individual. And God's throne is viewed as a threat to the autonomy of the individual. Let's talk about God's right to worship first. And let's deal with those questions of, is God self-centered or selfish when he demands worship? Well, why does God demand worship? Is he egocentric? Is he megalomaniacal or selfish? Well, let's take a definition of egocentric. What does it mean to be egocentric? Here you see egocentric is limited in outlook or concern to one's own activities or needs. Is that the God of the Bible? Is the God of the Bible limited in his outlook? Is he only concerned about his own activities or needs? Well, certainly not. You see the cross of Jesus Christ. What does the cross really mean? Well, it means that God is concerned about your interests and your needs and your activities, that he is willing to experience great sorrow and pain and loss in order to provide what you need. So God is definitely not selfish or self-centered or egocentric according to this definition. What about some of the other words we talked about? Is God a a megalomaniac? Well, what's the definition of megalomania? These are all from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Megalomania is a delusional mental illness that is marked by feelings of personal omnipotence and grandeur. Now, what happens if you actually are omnipotent? What happens if you actually have the grandeur of God? Well, then you're not a megalomaniac because you're not delusional. You see, it's wrong for a creature to think that he's omnipotent and grand like God. That's delusion. But it's not wrong for God to recognize his own omnipotence and his own grandeur. Do you see the difference? Most people don't. They miss it. They think that God is altogether like us. God is just an older, stronger version of us. And so therefore, if it's wrong for me to talk about my omnipotence and my grandeur, then it's wrong for God to talk about his omnipotence and his grandeur. A key error in logic, and one that Satan has spread 
throughout the world around us. Many people have this feeling in their heart, even if they can't articulate it. This is their aversion to God of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's at the very root of mankind's problem that we think God is just like us, and we think we are just like God, and that if it's wrong for me to do something, then it's wrong for God to do it. You don't understand who God is, and you don't understand who you are, and you don't understand the difference between the creator and the creation. Very important. Secondly, well, fourthly, I guess, because the first three all are basically the same question. The next question is God needy. Why does God demand worship? If it's not because he's selfish, if it's not because he is delusional, why does he demand worship? Maybe he's needy. And God is in heaven, and he's got low self-esteem, and he really needs us because he's insecure, and he needs constant reaffirmation like people do. And you kind of you know, pity people that are that way. They always need reaffirmation. They always need to be worshipped and told how wonderful they are. And that's, that's not a good quality in a creature to be needy like that emotionally. Was well, that why God demands worship? One of the key things about the attributes of God that we find in Scripture and also in logic is that God has a quality called aseity. Aseity is a wonderful word to, to put in your back pocket to, to make it look like you are very well educated in theology. And it's basically the quality of being self-derived or self-originated. Specifically, it has a very specific use, so it's pretty much only used in this context, the absolute self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy of God. Now, notice what I said earlier. The major flaw in the West is wanting to preserve the autonomy, this, this sense of complete independence and freedom of the individual. And so, no thrones, no rulers. Thrones are for bad guys. They're an enemy of the autonomy of the individual. Well, God is the one who has complete self-sufficiency. He is the one who has independence. He is the one who has autonomy. And it's delusional for us to think that we have these things. You are not autonomous. You did not create yourself. You are not independent. You are dependent. You are not self-sufficient. God is your sufficiency. And until you recognize that, until you understand that, you will have this war in your heart against God. One of the common attacks against the doctrine of God, the existence of God, comes from many sources. One that's publicized it and and popularized it is Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion, how we're all delusional that God exists. And he says... Very often, what people will argue for the existence of God is they'll say, well, you know, everything has to have a source. Everything has to have a beginning. Everything has to have a creator. And so the beginning and the source, logically, of all things, is God. It's a traditional argument for the existence of God called the cosmological argument. You have a cosmos. Where did it come from? It came from God. But Richard Dawkins says, well, that doesn't really answer any questions. It's not really logical because if everything has to have a cause, well, then what is the cause of God? Who created God? And so really the cosmological argument isn't everything has to have a cause or a beginning or a source. It's that everything created has to have a beginning, a cause, or a source. And there's one being who is uncreated, who is uncaused, 
the philosophers have rightly identified the uncaused cause as the supreme being whom we call God. He is the one who is self-derived, self-originated, absolutely self-sufficient, independent, and autonomous. So he's not needy. He doesn't demand our worship because he needs our worship. He's self-sufficient in himself. Don't pity him. Now, if God doesn't demand our worship because he's selfish, and he doesn't demand our worship because he's needy emotionally, then why does he demand our worship? And why does he punish people for not worshiping him, as we see throughout Scripture? Idolatry is the sin that God hates the most and punishes vehemently. Well, Revelation is a book of worship. And so to answer that question, why does God demand worship, let's take a look at, well, what is worship? And we're going to use Revelation chapter 4 to help us define and understand what exactly worship is. What is it that God is demanding of us? Revelation 4, back in your Bibles, pick it up in verse 8. Let's read verses 8 through 11. The four living creatures... Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And, notice this next part, whenever the living creatures do what? They give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, him who is seated on the throne, who lives Forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And what do they do? They worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." God is not selfish in demanding worship. God doesn't need our worship, but he demands it because the worship of the creator on the throne is what is right and good. When we give glory and honor and thanks and power, as it says in Revelation 4.11, to God, it is fitting, it's healthful, it's joyous, it's humbling, It's many other good things that you could list. This is essential to being human, to be a rational creature. You see, as rational creatures, we assign value to things. We assign value to family. Family is one of the the highest values that we cherish. I was watching a biography this week about Sylvester Stallone, and he was talking about all of his successes and, and the movies that he's made the house that he built and filled it with all this amazing stuff. And he says, but then I turned around and my kids were grown up and they were gone. And now I've got this big empty house with all this stuff that I did for my family and my family's gone and I'm just here by myself. And he goes back and says, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. And so people learn through their mistakes that they didn't value something the way that they should have valued something. Well, something has to be the highest value. In a level of all the different things that are valuable, all the different things that are worth something, there's something that is worth the most. There is something that is most valuable. Now you can put family in that spot. 
That's not a bad choice as far as things go. There's a lot worse things that you could put in that spot. But no created thing can take that spot. Why? Why can't you put family as the highest value, the thing that is of most worth in human existence? Because no created being, no created thing, no person other than God himself is able to satisfy the human soul. If you put something that is not of highest value in the place of highest value, you will stress it. You will push it beyond what it was meant and created to be. You that work with tools, you know that if you use a tool for something that is a greater task than the tool was designed to do, you're going to break the tool. You've probably all done it, right? And that's what happens when you put something in the place of God. No matter how wonderful it is, no matter how great it is, you put something as highest value, highest in priority, it can't bear the weight. It will break. It will strain. Put your love for your wife in that spot, your love for your husband in that spot. No human being can be your all in all. And if you try to make a human being your all in all, it's going to break the relationship sooner or later. Only God is able to bear the weight of being the most important, the most valuable. And it twists the soul of all mankind when we put something else in God's place. No matter how good, no matter how valuable it is, when we put something else in the highest place, it distorts our values. And one by one, chain by chain, link by link, we become twisted in our evaluations, in our ethics. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Say, Timothy, that sounds like a lot of philosophy. Does the Bible say anything about this? Romans chapter 1. A very important and very powerful passage. Starting in verse 18 and going down to the end of the chapter. Why does God demand worship? Romans 1, 18 through 32 answers that question. Listen for the answer as we read it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Notice the emphasis on creation. Same thing we had in Revelation. You are worthy, for you created all things. So, it says in verse 20, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. See the distortion of the heart that happens when people put something else, a created thing, in the place of the creator? It creates lusts in the heart that are impure that cause us to dishonor our bodies among ourselves, that the spiritual world has an impact on the physical world. And when you worship wrong, then you're going to act wrong. 
Because, it says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When you turn around the creator and creature distinction, like in Psalm 50, you thought that I was just like you. When you get that messed up, it messes up everything. How does that manifest itself in society? Well, look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The problem in Western culture is not the sexual revolution. It's not sexual immorality or homosexuality or transgenderism or any of that stuff. The problem is people don't worship and honor the Creator. They view God on His throne as an enemy of their autonomy. I can be whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. And it's only a tyrant that would tell me otherwise. It's that heart of rebellion against the Creator wanting to place ourselves in God's place and putting God in our place. That's the problem. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Notice this is not just natural law. It's not just like, well, God doesn't really want it to happen, but it just has to happen because that's the way morality functions. That is, once again, reducing God. God is not subject to this idea of morality. God is morality. He doesn't submit himself to the law. He doesn't say, oh, well, I wish things were different, but this is the way they are, and sorry, you did wrong, and now you have to suffer for it, and there's nothing I can do about it because I'm just God, just like you are, are God. That's not how it is. God actively hands people over. This is personal. You're not just sinning against an ethical concept. You're sinning against God, and God is angry. And he's the one who pans people over to these destructive desires because they have failed to honor and worship him. Man's problem is a worship problem. That's why God demands worship. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And now you have the description of society. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And where does it all start? Not honoring God, not acknowledging God, not worshiping God, but instead worshiping the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So that helps us understand why does God demand worship? He's not selfish. He's not needy. Worship is essential to existence and being and without proper worship, we are full of evil. All right, so 
Here's another word I want to introduce for you. You've probably heard it before, but if not, it's one that you should be aware of. We're talking about worship and putting God in the highest place. This is helping us to have a God-centered worship. The word theocentric means having God as the central interest and ultimate concern. Here we are at a worship service. What is your central interest? What is your ultimate concern? Well, let me put it this way. Who is your central interest? Who is your central concern? If it's yourself, then you have a worship problem. And if you have a worship problem, it's going to have consequences in your life. I'm not here to try to tell you something that's not good for you. Like, if you really were self-centered, that'd be good for you. But you got to, you know, be self-sacrificing and and be God-centered because that's just the right thing to do, even though it's not good for you. No, it is good for you to be God-centered and to make God your central interest and your ultimate concern. And if you don't do this, it's going to have consequences. You might not see them today. You might not see them tomorrow. But sooner or later, the piper must be paid. Worship leads to actions. Actions lead to character. Character leads to consequences. We want our worship service to have God as the central interest and the ultimate concern. We all have to resolve to do this personally and then as a group. Tomorrow morning when I wake up, my central interest and my ultimate concern is not myself, my day. My interests, my happiness, my food, my rest, my work, my sense of accomplishment, my honor, my esteem. But when I wake up in the morning, I make up my mind. I'm going to be a worshiper of God. And I'm going to make his concerns my concerns. I'm going to make his honor my concern. I'm going to make his pleasure my concern. And I'm going to talk about him. And it's going to pour out of my mouth. And I'm going to be excited about him as a worshiper in spirit and in truth. You know, we all worship. We all assign value to things. And you can tell what someone finds valuable by what they like to talk about. My son, I'll use him as another example. One of the things he's really excited about these days is is stop motion videos, using action figures and camera and making stop motion. And he just loves to talk about it. He'll come and tell me, Dad, this is what I did and this is what I put together and let me show it to you. And that's good. It's good to be excited about things. But the heart of the worshiper is most excited. I'm not saying you can't be excited about other things. I'm excited about marriage. I'm excited about being a dad. But the person who loves God is most excited about God. He says, let me tell you about my relationship with God. Let me tell you about how God answered my prayer. Let me tell you about how God helped me and strengthened me. Let me tell you about all the blessings that God has put in my life. And I want to give thanks and honor and glory to God. And it just pours out of you. It's not something that has to be drawn out and coerced and, well, okay, I guess we should talk about God. That's probably the right thing to do. But no, you just naturally pour forth praise and honor and glory to God. You can't stop talking about God. And it's people like that that are the true worshipers that God is seeking. That's what he saved you for. That's what he's created you for. And that's your witness to the world. 
That's the salt that is in you, that when you're in the world, you're not just excited about the things that everyone else is excited about, but that they can sense that you have a genuine love for God, that God is your central interest, that God is your ultimate concern. We need this. We have some, but we need more. We need to be more God-centered. I need to be more God-centered. It's a good reminder, a good challenge. All right, so we want theocentric worship. And I'll put this slide up and remind you, this ties in very well with our message today, that you have a choice before you. Churches and Christians, individuals and families, we all have this choice. We can create a God who worships us, or we can worship the God who created us. That's the choice that is before all humanity, according to Romans chapter 1. And it's really what the book of Revelation is all about. The book of Revelation is about God bringing his retributive justice on those who choose to create a God who worships them instead of choosing to worship the God who created them. The essence of repentance is giving up the first and accepting the second. When you make that trade in your heart, when you decide, I'm not going to create a God who worships me anymore. I'm not going to sing the songs about the God who worships me, and I'm not going to go to the church service and listen to the sermons about the God who worships me, but I am going to worship the God who created me. That's when the light dawns. That's when the cross makes sense. That's when the Bible starts to come together and you actually understand it. This is the key. As Vody Bauckham said in a sermon on this passage, I've been listening to Vody on Revelation, God save us from man-centered worship. God save us from man-centered worship. Who's the main character in your life? Is it you or is it God? I've been watching some videos and they, they like to make out these people who are very proud and they say, well, this person thinks he's the main character. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people running around. They think they're the main character. You're not the main character. God is the main character. Until you get that straight, life doesn't make sense. And you're going to act a fool. God is the main character. All right, so when we're talking about worship, back in the text, Revelation chapter 4, back to Revelation, notice that when the four living creatures offer the words of worship... They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. As we pointed out last week, the attribute of God's holiness, the attribute of God's omnipotence, his power, and the attribute of God's eternality. It is the attributes of God that we focus our worship through. God is worshiped through a knowledge of who God is. You have to know God in order to worship God. Aiden can't get excited about a stop-motion video if he never created a stop-motion video, and he doesn't know anything about stop-motion videos. you got to know something about something in order to assign value and worth to it. And you got to know something about God in order to assign the proper value and worth to God, his holiness, his power, and his eternality, his aseity. He is, and he has never been created. So let's talk a little bit about God's right to power. Focusing there on what it says, the Lord God Almighty. And notice again in verse 11, a little bit further down, that the 24 elders, they say, 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Here's the second part of our sermon we want to focus on this morning. God's right to worship, we've just talked about. Now let's talk about God's right to rule. This is where we started with the opening idea of God on his throne. Why is it a good thing that God sits on a throne when our culture has conditioned us that only tyrants sit on thrones? Only those who are enemies of freedom sit on thrones. What about God's right to power? In Revelation 4, 9, and 10, back in the text, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, that's worship. Giving glory and honor and thanks is another way of saying worship. To him who is seated on the throne, notice what it says about his throne, about this person on the throne. He lives forever and ever. God's right to power is largely based upon his eternality. In contrast to the power of man who is not eternal, who was born yesterday and dies tomorrow, who appears for a moment like a breath on a cold day as your breath freezes in the air and you can see it and then it vanishes away, that's what mankind is like in the brevity of our lifespan on earth. And so to compare the throne of man, who is like the grass of the field that withers and blows away, to the throne of God that is eternal, always has been, always will be, and is now, there's no comparison there. This puts God's right to rule on a whole different level. And to understand this, I want us to go back to the book of Daniel. Come back with me to Daniel chapter 4. You could say that what I just proposed, which is what I just stated about God's right to rule being based upon his eternality, is the key theme, the main point of Daniel chapters 4 through 6. So in the Old Testament, after Ezekiel, you've got the book of Daniel. And here, Daniel is living in Babylon. Daniel is a Jewish man. He's been taken captive by the Babylonians, deported to a foreign city. He's been raised in their culture, been taught their language, introduced to their religion, and he's living under the dominion of a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who is king of pretty much everywhere that he's gone, anywhere that his armies can get to. He's won every war. He has established his sovereignty. That's where we are in Daniel chapter 4. And I want you to take a look at Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar is an author of Scripture. Daniel incorporates Nebuchadnezzar's letter here in his book, and it starts off in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, because his kingdom was uh, among the, the whole populated world that he knew of, he's sending it out to his whole kingdom, and he says this, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God, notice that, Most High, who's in the position of ultimate supremacy, ultimate worth, ultimate value, the Most High God. God Most High is how God identified himself in contrast to the many gods of paganism that were worshipped during this period Old Testament was written in. In contrast to these lesser gods, you have God Most High. He's the true God, the highest one. And he says this, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom 
is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. What's the difference between Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and God Most High, his kingdom? Well, God's kingdom is everlasting. God's kingdom continues from generation to generation. Come down to verse 25 in the same chapter. Nebuchadnezzar recounts his dream and Daniel's interpretation of this prophetic dream, a dream about God's judgment upon the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. And we pick it up in verse 25 where Daniel explains, You, Nebuchadnezzar, shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The Most High rules the kingdoms of men. Well, we don't have kingdoms anymore. We're democracies. We got rid of all those thrones. Okay, you still got rulers. You still got people who are in charge. You're still a servant. You're still paying your taxes. You're still under the laws. Don't think that because we are a republic that it's not a human domain with human people who are powerful and who have power over your lives. And a lot of them you haven't even elected. You didn't even get to choose a lot of your rulers. Why does Bill Gates have so much power? Just happenstance? Just happened to be in the right place at the right time to be able to found the company that ended up winning against the other companies that were trying to do the same thing. And somehow this guy got so much money and so much power. No, it wasn't happenstance. It was God. Just like God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to be king, God raised up Bill Gates to be one of the most powerful men in the world with one of the most powerful corporations. What about all those unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C.? Surely God didn't appoint them. Yes, he did. The billionaires and the unelected bureaucrats are appointed by God because he rules over mankind. He's never given up his throne. He's never taken a day off. He's never said, oops, didn't want that to happen. God is sovereign, and that's what he's teaching Nebuchadnezzar. You think you did this. We think Satan did it. God says, I did it. I'm in charge. Did I use Satan? Sure. Did I use Nebuchadnezzar? Sure. But let's not forget who's on the throne. Let's not forget who's in charge. Christians have forgotten. This sounds like strange doctrine. It's the whole point of the book of Daniel. Don't believe me? Well, let's keep going. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. So it happens, just like God said, Nebuchadnezzar gets humbled. In verse 30, the king says to himself as he's walking on the royal palace, the roof of his royal palace, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Power, majesty. Who do they belong to? Who is worthy of power and majesty? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn. He's going to learn. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know 
It's true whether he knows it or not, but now God is proving it to Nebuchadnezzar, and through Nebuchadnezzar, he's publishing it to the whole world that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. The Most High rules the kingdom of financial empires. The Most High rules the bureaucrats. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Why? I could pick much better men to to be the most powerful and the richest men in the world. There are no better men. What would you be without the grace of God in your life? You're a young person. You end up making a billion dollars in a company and becoming one of the most powerful people in the world. What are you going to become apart from the grace of God? You're going to become like Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to become like Bill Gates. There are no better men. There's just men. And God puts some in positions of power and he puts others in lesser positions of power. But we all have power. Some a lot more, some a lot less. Don't worry about how much power God has given you or how much power God has given to somebody else. Worry about who is the one who has all of the power. And that's God. And he can humble the mighty in a moment, in an instant, anytime he wants. And he's told us when and how he's going to do it. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. God is going to humble the people that he's given power to who have abused that power, who have not worshipped him, who have not recognized that glory and honor and power belong to the Lord, and you, you also will stand before his throne and he will examine you. Your power in your family, your power with your finances, your power with your vote, your power with your social influence. Did you submit it to me? Did you honor and glorify me? Did you recognize me? Or did you glorify yourself and become man-centered? Don't worry about what everyone else is doing with their power. Worry about what you're doing with your power. That's what you have to give an account for. Darius had to learn this lesson. In Daniel chapter 6, he had to also confess. The God of Daniel is the living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. Has God's kingdom been lessened since the time of Darius? Since the time of Nebuchadnezzar? No. It never ends. He was in control then. He's in control now. God has the power. When we worship God and we give him the glory and the honor and power, we're not empowering him. We're not glorifying him in the sense that he wasn't glorious and now he is. We're just recognizing the glory that he has. We're just recognizing the power that he has. And if you don't recognize the power that God has, then you're failing as a worshiper. Recognize God's power. It's good for you. It takes away anxiety. It takes away fear. Why are Christians on so many medications for anxiety? There's a lot of reasons, but you get down to the deepest root. We don't recognize God's power. We say we do. We think we do, but we don't. We don't trust in it. Our faith is so small. More faith is what you need. More faith is what you need. So, 
Let's bring this to its conclusion for this morning. We talked about Daniel. One important note here before we wrap things up. You need to understand two aspects of God's kingdom. This is a slide from a couple years ago, and it's good for us to come back to this from time to time because it's essential for understanding the Bible. When it comes to God's kingdom, there's the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar and Darius Darius are talking about, and that's his eternal kingdom, his universal kingdom. The fact that God is sovereign now, that he is the one who made Nebuchadnezzar king, he's the one who made Bill Gates rich, he's the one who has put Satan in charge of this horrible world that we live in for his purposes. We'll talk more about that next week. But just get this from the Psalms, this is a key theme, from Daniel 4, which we looked at. The universal kingdom is the eternal kingdom of God that always has been and always will be, by which everything that happens is part of God's plan and it's under God's control. That's the universal kingdom. It's talked about throughout Scripture. However, there's another kind of kingdom, another aspect of God's rule, called the mediatorial kingdom. And this is the kingdom of Israel. When God entered into a relationship with Israel, he says, out of all the peoples on the earth, all the earth is mine, you're a special people, you're a holy people, a holy nation, and I'm going to manifest my kingdom through you in a special way, a unique way, through the covenant. And ultimately, that covenant with Israel is being expanded to include salvation for all the nations on the earth, as God promised to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so now we live in the time where the Savior of Israel, who's also the Savior of the world, and he's gathering a people who are going to be his special people, the ones through which God manifests a righteous rule on the earth. That's the mediatorial kingdom. The unrighteous kingdoms now, well, they're part of God's universal rule, his universal kingdom. But the righteous kingdom of God in Israel through their Messiah, Jesus Christ, that is what we are waiting for. That's what we're waiting for Christ to come back and to establish. That's what the book of Revelation is about. God is universally reigning in Revelation 4 and 5. God will bring his mediatorial kingdom to earth through Revelation 6 through 19. His universal kingdom never changes. The mediatorial kingdom, it's something that progresses and changes in history. Very important to understand that. Those who are amillennialists will emphasize the universal kingdom of God. They'll say, when the Bible's talking about the kingdom, it's talking about the universal kingdom. Christ is on the throne. He's in control. We don't have to wait for some future day when Christ is going to be in control. And that's true. Good. I like that you emphasize that. But it's also true. Don't use one truth to cancel out another truth. It's also true that Christ is coming back to do away with the evil kingdoms that God has established in his sovereignty on all the nations right now, and he's going to crush them with the stone that is made without hands that comes and demolishes all the other kingdoms and grows into a kingdom that fills the whole world forever. That coming kingdom is a very important thing to emphasize as well. So don't use the coming kingdom to negate the universal kingdom. Don't use the universal kingdom to negate the mediatorial kingdom. They're both important. They both need to be loved and emphasized and practically lived out. All right, well, that's where we're going to stop for this morning. A reminder of what Jesus Christ said 
in Matthew 26, verse 64. I love the way this brings it all together for us here. Jesus said at his arrest, at his trial, he's standing before worthless men who God had appointed to have rulership, authority, in Israel. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? You would have no authority over me unless it was given to you by my Father in heaven. These people, the high priest, the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death, that spat on him and called him a blasphemer, God appointed them. Just like God appointed Pharaoh. And God said, for this very reason I raised you up so that I might show my power and glory in you. And for this very reason, God put Caiaphas and his evil cohorts in places and chairs of authority among his nation of Israel so that they might condemn the righteous one in their own sinfulness. God is not to blame for their sinfulness. He's not to blame for Pharaoh's hardness of heart. But he uses it for his purpose so that Jesus Christ could say to those evil men, you have said so. I am the Son of the Most High. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at his right hand with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was, with the glory that he had before his incarnation, with the power and authority that he had throughout all eternity in the eternal kingdom of God as the Word of God, with all the authority and power of God himself. That's what Christ has returned to after his short period of humiliation. He is reigning now over the eternal kingdom of God. But notice the second part coming on the clouds of heaven. He's reigning in heaven. He's coming back to reign on the earth. And every person will kneel before him. Every person will give an account according to what they have done with the power that God has given them. And that includes you and I. So examine yourself. Consider your ways. God has given you a little power. Are you subjecting that power to him? Are you recognizing that power is from him? Are you recognizing him as the creator and you as the creation? Him as the Lord and you as the servant? Whatever you say, Lord, whatever you ask, you've given me everything I have, everything is yours, I'm going to use it for you. If you're living that way, you're living ready. If you're not living that way, you're going to be surprised when Christ comes back and it's not going to be a good surprise. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the Holy Bible. There's no other book like it in the world that puts us in our place as those who are contingent beings, created beings, dependent beings. We thank you that your word, like no other book, places you in the highest place. That this is a God-centered book, a theocentric book, And that as we listen to it, as we believe it, it can transform and change us to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. Lord, make me a worshiper. May it spread throughout all of us. May I be inspired by the worshiping heart of others in this congregation as you open our eyes to be able to see and understand your greatness, your majesty, your power, your holiness, your self-existence. We struggle with keeping you as the highest in our heart and in our lives. And we ask you for forgiveness for our foolishness. And we ask you for power to be able to put you in the place in our hearts that you occupy. 
the most high place, the most holy place, the most valuable place. Amen.